Hi, I'm Dori Shafrir. And I'm Kate Spencer. And we are the hosts of Forever 35. And today we're talking about Club Med, the best all-inclusive getaway for families. Today, Club Med has nearly 70 resorts worldwide, from beachside resorts in the Caribbean and Mexico, to magical locations in the Maldives and Morocco, to ski resorts in the mountains from Canada to the Alps. Between their all-inclusive family programming, wellness offerings, land and water sports, and their French heritage-inspired food and drink offerings, Club Med is the best way to elevate your family getaway, no matter which location you're at. To learn more, visit clubmed.us. Welcome back to the Women's Podcast. I'm Roisin Ingle. And if this is your first time listening or you just recently started putting us in your ears, thank you so much for choosing this podcast. You can send us emails, thewomenspodcast at irishtimes.com or you can get in touch with us on social at IT Women's Podcast to let us know what you think about this episode or about anything you'd like us to cover in the future. We'd love to hear from you. Now, today we are hearing from the author of a book in which a nameless middle-class woman, she's a mother of two, a wife and a secondary school teacher, walks out of her comfortable life in the suburbs, never to return to the humdrum of that life again. She's, she's absolutely, she's so pent with rage. As she moves through the reckoning, I think it's quite intense for this woman. I think there's much suffering, or certainly I wrote it in a way that showed that, you know, there's, there's no free lunches here. There's a deep, dark place that she has to go to, and that's with herself. And I wanted the novel to move from a state of, sort of crazy rage. <laughs> She's, she nearly wants to have a row with anyone to the deep grief and loss that she experiences at the end of the novel and, and how, to, how to continue living, how to make a life, how to be a person. That was the voice of Cathy Sweeney there. And you won't want to miss this conversation. She's just brilliant. And her novel Breakdown comes highly recommended by all of us on the Women's Podcast. But first... Bridget's Day is just around the corner. That means loads of events to celebrate her and our new bank holiday. There are far too many to list here, but do go and check out bridget1500.ie where you'll find loads of them. The festival takes place from January 27th to February 6th and it brings together artists, performers, communities and visitors to celebrate the amazing Bridget. And the programme is going to include a special Bridget's Day concert in collaboration with Hot Press in the Moat Theatre, St. David's Church and the Potato Market in Kildare. Artists that are confirmed to take part across the programme include Elner McAvoy, Moya Brennan of Clannad, Mary Coughlin, Gemma Hayes, the Henry Girls, Lisa Lamb and Nell Meskel. And other programme highlights include Mother Earth, which is a day of food and music at the wonderful barn in Leakslip. And that has a lineup of renowned female chefs, including Doreen Allen, Mike and Beck Bailey and Chantelle Nicholson, who are going to feature at the event. And also We Shall Overcome, Songs of Social Justice and Freedom will be held in Athai. And She Moved Through the Fair, An Evening of Song will take place in St. Bridget's Cathedral in Kildare. So do keep an eye out for all those Bridget-related events because it is a proper festival now and we also have an extra public holiday, which is fantastic. 
Now, soon we are going to have a referendum on that bizarre part of our constitution which references women's so-called duties in the home and her place there. It is archaic sexist language, if you ask me, and it has no place in the constitution. Today, the National Women's Council are launching its referendum campaign and has asked the public to vote yes on both referendum questions on March 8th. They say that part of the Constitution is representative of a time when women were treated like second class citizens. The current definition of family, they say, only recognises those which exist within the bonds of marriage. And they say that's shaming and stigmatising to the countless families who exist outside of marriage, yet are not recognised or protected by our constitution. And being in one of those families myself, I say, hear, hear. And as I said, the National Women's Council is calling for a yes and yes vote on March 8th to enshrine equality for women and families into our constitution. Of course, we are going to be discussing those referenda uh, further on this podcast. But in timely fashion, a debut novel has just been published, which takes a contemporary look at one woman in her Dublin middle class suburban home. A woman who one morning gets up and decides she cannot hack her life for one moment longer. So she leaves her home and instead of going to the secondary school where she works as a teacher... She travels first by car and then by train to Rosslare, from where she takes a ferry to Fishguard in Wales. Along the way, she finds herself in service stations, shopping centres, train stations, ferry terminals, recalling her youth, earlier fantasies of suicide and reminiscing about those people who have come in and out of her life. This novel is really about the rage and reckoning of a middle-aged, educated woman who has lived her life in accordance with the expectations of society. And I think it's the kind of book that for some women reading it will provoke an awful lot of feelings and perhaps even encourage some of them to contemplate or fantasise about an alternative life they might be living. It's a brilliant debut novel. I'm telling you, it's really fantastic. And it's by Cathy Sweeney, who studied at Trinity College and taught English at secondary level for many years before turning to writing. Her work has been published in various magazines and journals. Her debut short story collection was called Modern Times and was released in 2020. We had a really wide ranging conversation. I really enjoyed talking to her. We talked about her childhood, about her having a baby at just aged 18 and how she found writing in her 30s after many years of teaching. I think you're really going to enjoy this. Here's my conversation with Kathy Sweeney, author of brilliant debut novel Breakdown. Kathy, you've just released your first novel, Breakdown, and in 2020, you had your first collection of short stories, Modern Times. But writing is something that came to you a bit later. You were an English teacher for years and you didn't start writing till your late 30s. Why did it take so long? Uh, I think I just didn't feel any need to. Um, I loved English. I'm a, a reader since an early age and I went on to study English and then teach English. And life was busy and I was really very um, satisfied with reading. And then uh, somewhere in my, my mid-30s, I just I just kind of uh, changed my outlook. And then I, I did feel a compulsion to write. And once I started it was quite intense. Tell me about the intensity. I'm fascinated by that. Was it kind of like in all your spare moments and you kind of got this urge going on? Very much an urge. Um, And it became so much a part of my way of thinking then. It changes your perception. The way visual art does, um, I remember as a child, an art teacher who was very good, 
uh, talking about looking at the negative spaces around the leaves on the tree. And that just blew my mind for a couple of months. I looked at everything with the space around it. And writing then was quite similar because everything becomes like a translation almost. And I'm not 100% certain that this is the most brilliant thing. It just is. It's just something that happens. There's no, it's not a a great thing or a negative thing. It's just that that is the way my brain shifted. I remember reading that Patricia Highsmith said, like one of the really great things about writing is that it distracts you from your own life. I think there's some truth in that. Yes, that's very good. Let's go back a bit to your quite interesting childhood, because I don't know much about it, but I know that you were in Zambia, you were in London and your family travelled around a bit. So how did that happen and what, what was that like? It all happened, you know, before I was like eight, but I think that they are the formative years. And my parents both married when they were like 21. And um, I was so and I was born when they were 22. And my father was moving from being a draftsman to an engineer. And it was very much just seeking work. There's no great glamour to this. Uh, They just they moved from Dublin to Longford to Cork to London to three years in Zambia and then back to Dublin and then ending up in Greystones where I was settled then from the age of sort of eight until, you know, through the teens. So in many ways, when people say, where are you from? The answer that I is there to give is Greystones, but something in my mind always glitches into a sort of, you know, negative space. (laughs) Um, And because the answer isn't just as clear as it, as it is for many people. I think that just the effect of that is simply that you're moving from environments that are incredibly different uh, visually, uh, but also in their mores, in like the way we do things around here. Um, while that may be very obvious to adults, it's not at all obvious <laughs> to a child. So you're having to relearn. And um, I think that that relearning, there's something in me that I connected very much with when I was reading Ballard with the idea that if it's so different, then things that are done can be undone, that this is a construct. Obviously, I didn't think that as a child. But later on, when I was considering why I'm so curious, just to look at anything, people on a bus, what's in your shopping basket? I mean, it's, you know, it's slightly voracious. If somebody's reading a book, you know, I will angle myself on the bus to see what that cover of what they're reading. I hope it's not invasive. I don't feel that I'm nosy with people that I'm close to, but it's just curiosity about like how we do things around here. And I think that maybe the moving between very different environments just creates kind of hyper curiosity. Yeah, that's that's so interesting. And I think that is the sort of hallmark of a lot of writers, isn't it? Just that absolute um, ability to look around and see all these little details that maybe other people are missing because they're all more concerned about what's going on in the interior. And sometimes it's like that looking outside and, and noting all of that. And we'll get on to your book later, but I can see that voraciousness and that eye for detail is really in breakdown in a brilliant way. Um, you. you mentioned that your parents had you kind of young. I suppose for then it wasn't necessarily that young, tw- 22. But no. you had your first child at 18, which was kind of in, in a way quite young. Tell me about that experience because you were studying at the time in Trinity. I was in first year and I was enjoying it. I wasn't enamoured. I'd had a slight disappointment, I think, initially, because my imagination can sometimes overtake reality. And I thought that I was going to go into some sort of new universe 
I think I'd watched too much Brideshead Revisited or something. And uh, it all seemed a little mundane, like more school, people getting the bus in and talking about essays and getting the bus home. And I was a little disillusioned. I think that the fact that I became pregnant and went on to have uh, Lucy two weeks into second year was probably the reason I stayed. I'm not sure I could have anchored myself in that universe otherwise. So it was, it was a very anchoring experience. I felt myself connected to the kind of earth and not in a sort of hippie way, but just in a, oh, this is what people are doing for a long time on this planet. And it gave me something to think about that wasn't me. And it was very, very busy. It was 1989 when she was born. And I think I just like, I think I just got the, so lucky. I, I, I really do. I think a couple of years earlier, it would have a very different landscape. I think I just hit it where it was just about okay. In fact, um, <laughs> Trinity had set up a group for student parents and there was about seven of us. Most of them, maybe people who were older doing doctorates or whatever. And we used to meet every, every week and get like free sandwiches and have a chat, which was wonderful. It was really, it was fun. I also was able to get a place for her in the creche because in some ways it was a novelty. And um, yeah, I think I just rode the tide of perhaps the first woman of that age in this country where I got away with it. <laughs> now, I'm not saying there weren't people who, you know, I, I just pretended I didn't see them, the people who didn't think it was, you know, the best thing. And there were, it's just a kind of um, an aloofness. Or perhaps um, people who treat you like it might be contagious for their daughter. <laughs> I might give them pregnancy. Um, so, so I just, I just didn't. I, I, I tend to blinker things that I don't like. It didn't affect me in any way. And um, I was incredibly lucky in that my family were just a hundred percent. And I was living with the Lucy's father at the time. And really, Roisin, I had a pretty easy ride of it. Yeah. Well, I'm glad to hear that because it's really interesting that you say you just you rode that sort of wave mm, just mm. at the time when you could do it, when people were starting to realise that this wasn't, you know, the end of the world and that people could. But you were still quite young to have a, a new person. And, and I'm sure that must have been challenging as well while you're doing your studies, even if your family were behind you. It was challenging and I was independent doing it. Um, I, I just had voracious levels of physical energy. Sometimes I look back and I go, I'm not, you know, just the energy of like up child up into crash, study all day, drink coffee, smoke a cigarette, collect child, you know, so, okay, wow, because I'm really catching up with ma major laziness at this stage of my life now. Um, so there was just, I had a lot of just pure physical energy. And also her, her father was like, you know, minding her, etc. E even at 18, my feminism was quite strong. I used to get a little bit hairs in the back of my neck a little bit up when people I'd be coming home from uh, college from Trinity on the train and so I, like, I saw Lucy's father and he was carrying the baby he's amazing <laughs> what a guy <laughs> and no, I don't think that's changed that much but he would no. but, but because he was that was you know that was early days of that even at that age 18 I thought this is a bit weird I see quite a lot of women doing this. <laughs> I can see them out the window of the bus now. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. So tell me how it went on then and how you got into teaching, because that was a big passion of your life. That, and Was that something that you always saw yourself doing? Is that why you were in college or did you have an idea then as to what your goals were? 
I'm not really a goals person. I'm very much a drift person. I like literally put on the CAO English and history because I liked them. I think I had two things on the CAO. They're both English and history. I, just, I don't like once I like something, I don't think, what are the other things? So when I was in uh, fourth year and finishing up the degree, it just seemed a fairly logical choice. I didn't think that much more about it. I suppose I was always the type of child who was lining up the teddies and dolls to teach them a lesson. So, <laughs> so I, I, and I was, and I was very, very, you know, enlivened by good teachers that I'd had. And also you learn a lot from teachers that you don't like. So it, it was quite a natural progression. And um, I went straight in, did the HDIP and went into teaching. And it was um, early 90s. It was the beginning of just, they weren't plentiful, but there was a f- you know, few more of them. And um, yeah, I just threw everything. I loved teaching, absolutely loved it. I never understood if a teacher said, oh, the same old text every year, because if I taught Macbeth and then three or four years later it came around again, I'd be jumping up and down the excitement to read it again, because each time, obviously, texts read you and they're different. And I'm a great rereader. So I loved teaching uh, and I loved it for many, for, you know, for, for, for many years. And I kind of did as much as I as I could for, you know, in, in my own, in my own way with it. And then I, th- I suppose writing and teaching are complementary. I still teach, but in a, a different way. Uh, but writing and full-time second level teaching would certainly not be complementary. Um, but yeah, it, it was, I, I think it was a good, tra- I mean, I, a training round. I spent my days reading and a lot of poetry, which I find that now that I'm not teaching I forget sometimes I say poetry, Dan, and there's no greater pleasure than that moment in a classroom. You can feel just curiosity in the room and you're, you're, just, you're just hanging around a line, one line of Adrian Rich and students are asking questions about it. There's great beauty and privilege in that. And you did go back to teach in Greystones where you're from. Was that weird being a teacher in a place where you were taught, I suppose? It was extremely weird initially <laughs> because I hadn't actually like liked school. <laughs> In the latter part, I was always trying to skip classes. I was fairly much notorious for it. I'd kind of come in for something and then slip out the door again. I saw myself as semi-invisible in sixth year, so I felt almost like I could walk through the walls of that school. Tell me about that, Cathy, a bit though, semi-invisible and that kind of, again, I suppose we're talking about that outsider thing, are we sort of yeah, not necessarily bit. feeling like you fit in? It was nothing particular about the school. Um, I just, at, at 17, I was I was coming loose from that sort of structure. I think I was, again, lucky if there'd been a transition year, I probably wouldn't have made it to sixth year. There, there's different ways of things suiting people. It was just the, the the rigidness became painful, like a, like you were carrying a hard sort of shell. And I I wanted to do well. I wanted to study, but yeah, I, I I was feeling quite oppressed by the rigidity of the system. I had some very good friends in school, uh, which was you know really it's really helpful, and they sort of they sort of didn't didn't really mind me being myself. You know, they always had the joke, well, like, what would everyone do at, at a party? And it was, well, Kathy wouldn't be there. <laughs> <laughs> so, 
So, but they were very, you know, they were very accepting. But when I went back, you know, uh, Proust and the Madeleine, like that's just like real. <laughs> it really does happen. Whenever you go back to a situation and you revisit time, it's fascinating. And there's that great quote, I think it's Patricia Highsmith, the past is never where you think you left it. So you reappraise depending on what you want from your memory now. So there was a lot of reappraisal, which I, I think I was grateful for. And my uh, years uh, teaching in St. David's uh, um, were really very good, very positive. I enjoyed it very much. And then things I hadn't noticed when I was there, the fact that the school sits looking out on the sea. I was like, you did notice it, but you didn't. Yeah. And now as a teacher, my classroom... I would be looking down at the students, but beyond them to the ocean. And I said, this is incredible. So it was, it was, it was a good experience. It was one of those experiences, you know, it's not a full circle or redemption or healing, but it just, uh, just sort of um, widened my memories of the past. Mm, I love that. I, what a privilege as well to be looking at the sea, like you say, but not really realising that as a child. Yeah. And then when you're there as a teacher, oh my God, I can actually yeah. see the water. Beautiful. Yeah. Um, now let's get on to Breakdown. I absolutely loved your book, right? It's your Thank first you. novel. I have told so many people about it, but I won't talk too much. I'll, I'll talk a bit later. I just want to tell people what it's about. It's about this teacher who really, I suppose, wanted to be an artist. Um, and one morning she gets up and instead of going to work to her school where she's supposed to, to go and do her teaching, she just drives south on the motorway. She sort of her first intention is to sort of have a bit of time to herself, maybe just take a, I suppose, a, a bit of a sickie, pretend to be sick, go and have coffee, do some shopping, whatever. But she never, ever comes back to her life. And I actually think, Kathy, that your book is going to start a bit of a revolution in the middle class suburbs of Dublin and beyond, because... I think the book, and maybe you can talk about it a bit, is it's almost um, a lot of it is saying what many women don't say about their lives, what they're afraid to say or recognise about their lives. Maybe the things that they're dissatisfied with, the parts of their lives that they have um, sort of pushed down and pretended are okay, but really aren't. And it feels like there might be this tsunami of women reading your book who are going to wake up to their lives in a new way. I'm, I'm fascinated to see. Maybe not, but I do think fiction has that power to change people, you know, and I think your book is, is going to have that kind of power. But tell me about why you want to write about such a woman who wakes up one day and says, no, I'm not doing this anymore. Well, first of all, thank you very much for that, Roisin. I'm, I'm delighted to hear that. The character came to me in a, a very strong mental image, quite suddenly and all of a piece. I saw a woman doing exactly that, you know, thinking she was just going to pull a sickie, that she was a bit fed up, driving south, just sort of the wrong way on the motorway and not coming back. Now, once I had that, it wouldn't let go of me. It took me a long time to find her voice. I'm quite into voice as a writer, sort of like to find, you know, her voice. And I did some method writing, like I would get up at like half five and drive around. I didn't do this much, like I'm not a complete weirdo, but I did it a bit. Drive around um, particular suburbs of South Dublin, like looking at like what house does she live in? And I found it. And then sort of sitting in the car and watching, you know, morning come up on the estate. And I did the journey down the motorway. I spent the time in the shopping centre, a little bit in Arklow Town, 
I took the train, I got the ferry, I stayed a night in a hotel in Wales, and then we went into lockdown, which was just as well, because I think I was having such a great time that I could have kept it up forever. <laughs> I mean, research is wonderful and terribly dangerous because it's you, you can just get into the research. And obviously, what you're looking for with research is not knowledge. You don't want, this is me, obviously, I don't want to know everything. People sometimes tell, oh, you, you're interested, like you should read this. But like sometimes I'm interested in my half thoughts about it. So I'm, I need to be in that space between knowing and not quite knowing. So I had enough and I had to put it under a microscope and make it bigger and bigger and bigger. And, it, and, and, yeah. and, and you, you totally distill what you have into an imaginative space. Uh, because when I was researching, I always thought I'd be doing it again or more of it. So I was left with just this little kind of trace element, which was brilliant. Yeah. Um, I suppose the search for the woman perhaps began like in my 40s with fascination with women in this age group from sort of 45 to 55. I think it, women of this age are absolutely amazingly interesting. And yeah, it's a, it was a distillation of many things. It was extremely important to me, a couple of things right from the get-go of the novel. One, that the narrator would not be classically likable, because I'm tired of that. Two, that the book would read like a report from experience. Someone had said that to me in this, you know, in this age that we're in. That's all they were interested in. And I thought, well, maybe that's all I'm interested in. So that's what I'll write. Uh, uh, you know, as, as if somebody is really just, you're getting a report from their experience. And I suppose the third thing was that I wanted to contextualise this woman within the world. This seemed so important to me because I think that a lot of people have a lot of stuff going on in personal lives and that we're almost inculcated into believing that it's us and that this recreates guilt, perhaps even shame, when in fact, the societal sort of circles around these issues are far more powerful than the individual person. And I think the sort of disconnect between individual experience and the world it is a is a deterrent to solidarity. I think that's so well put. Can I read a little bit just to show Please. what it is that she's escaping from? Because there's this incident at the beginning of the book where, I mean, it's like every other day her husband comes home, he's rummaging in the fridge for some cheese. And at that moment, it's just something happens in her where every flush of the toilet, every crunch of toast, everything that's happening in her house that is up to now maybe just been stuff she's endured or accepted. It's just too much and she can't take it anymore. You write, the day ahead is carved in marble. Get up, get ready for work at a state secondary school. Make sure sun is up, drink coffee, let the cat out, drop sun to school, drive to work, teach class, make small talk with colleagues, pick up a bottle of wine on the way home, make dinner, pour wine, tidy up, put a wash on, avoid row with daughter, remind husband to contact his mother about her test results, have bath, mess around on phone, finish bottle of wine, turn on TV in bedroom, fall asleep. And she just gets to a point where she just can't do that anymore. It's yeah. very powerful. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. This character exists, sort of the, the broader outlines of it in popular culture, you know, the kind of Howard Beale that I'm, I'm, mad as hell I'm just not going to take it anymore but as a female I don't think so as much unless sort of you're young single and terribly pretty <laughs> um a sort of Thelma and Louise thing which I loved but this this character 
I think it's a taboo, the mother having these uh, very, very, very strong feelings. Hi, my name is Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic, and I'm excited to talk to you about Club Med. Club Med operates at beach and mountain resorts and is the best all-inclusive getaway for families. They have Club Med Punta Cana, their flagship family resort, and many other options in Mexico, the Caribbean, and around the world. Club Med are the pioneers of the all-inclusive concept, which is the best way to vacation. Great for families, groups, or even solo travelers looking for land and water sports, delicious food and a place to make unforgettable memories. Visit clubmed.us, call 1-800-CLUB-MED or your travel advisor. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. She's nameless in the book. We don't have a name for her. But everyone else, her children are Mark and Lauren, who she's quite scathing about, which is another unsayable thing. I think uh, how people feel about their children sometimes doesn't get fully uh, exposed in, in an honest way. And your the book is very good on that. But why did you not give her a name? I thought about it and I probably had a list, you know, I'd go through them. But um, every name comes with associations. It's impossible to find a name that doesn't already have a narrative in some ways. Uh, so therefore, I left her as an every woman of a particular type. And in terms of her children, yes, I mean, she's, she's, she's absolutely, she's so pent with rage. As she moves through the reckoning, I think is quite intense for this woman. I think there's much suffering, or certainly I wrote it in a way that showed that, you know, there's, there's no free lunches here. There's a deep, dark place that she has to go to. And that's, with herself. And I wanted the novel to move from a state of sort of crazy rage. <laughs> She's, she nearly wants to have a row with anyone to the deep grief and loss that she experiences at the end of the novel and, and how to how to continue living, how to make a life, how to be a person. She ends up in Wales in, in a cottage. But like you say, and it's sort of the book moves between her life now that she's created for herself in this this very sort of Spartan, but barren, sort of not barren, but, you know, it's very different to the life she was living, you know, and she cuts her hair and she's completely different. And then we see back to her life that she's left and, and her thoughts about that as well. I was interested in a, an interview you did a few years ago with the Irish Times. I don't know if you remember, but you talked about... Um, how much of your life you concentrated on adapting to try to be a normal person. You said that you'd learned at this stage of your existence that there aren't right ways to do things, but you didn't know that until you were nearly 40 and you spent so many years in a desperate struggle to do things right, to have a right job, a right relationship, a right house and a right kids. And you said that you've really ended up with nothing right. I think that's in a way, not to be saying that this is autobiographical, but I presume you must have some resonance with 
with the character in that that we all do like we're trying all the time I'm going to be the best parent I'm going to read all the books I'm going to do all the right things they're not going to watch the TV they're not going to be on their phones this endless list of things that we try to do to make sure that we're best girl in class and we're turning up in the world and all of that is that something that you kind of were interested in when you looked around at other women and yourself I suppose I was fascinated with it and I think uh, Roisin that one of the drivers again for writing this novel uh, was to deconstruct story um, and how we use story both as something wondrous to give us imaginative escape, but also something to restrict us um, is an abiding fascination with me. And I suppose that's that's something I, that I I became very conscious of as I as I began writing and reading. And many of my short stories want to forefront the fact that, like, please don't forget you're reading a story <laughs> because we we enter fictional landscapes so easily. But what if those fictional landscapes become so good that they're our life? And I was really interested with this because we live in such a powerful society for advertisement um, and these kind of um, narratives that are all around us can be quite narrowing of our understanding of possibility. And I think that this woman goes on a reckoning in regarding particularly her children with how much of her parenting was prescribed to her by society. And when I was talking about right, that's what I meant. I didn't mean actually right, God forbid, but right as in social norm. That sense in our contemporary world of this thing called norm that has only come since the Industrial Revolution, we start measuring everything. So everything's taken back to, you know, the, the, the average, the mean, so that you're, if you go one point this way or one point that way, in whatever it is from metrics to do with health or behaviours, that you're, that you're going outside of that. And um, it seems to me that we're at, we're at break point with this because it doesn't exist it simply doesn't exist. And yet, and yet we're, we're within stories to, to conform to it. And that her, her regret for, for want of a better word, but certainly her reckoning is that she had allowed a story to overwhelm and become the kind of structures of her existence. And that that had been very much mediated to her rather than, it's not, it's not to take it all down, but but a, a sort of questioning and a curiosity and, a, and an understanding again of the fact that each individual is existing within this simply a construct. Um, and I think parenting has been very much co-opted into, into this kind of structure big time, <laughs> like, like in a very, very intense way. Um, and it creates, I think it creates incredible levels of personal pressure and, and a sense of burden um, but I'm not sure that that women experienced it in the same way. When I talk to older women, they certainly look at me like I they don't know what I'm talking no. about. And uh, and I, I think that this this switch over from being sort of responsible for everything is very intense and is very real. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree with you more. And I was just thinking as you were talking about the Catholic Church, I mean, in the past, that oppression came from there. It came from, you know, this is the way you have to live your life, particularly women. And we know how that played out. 
But in a way, the modern version of that is all these things we're supposed to do as mothers and how we're supposed to be. And that comes from, like you say, advertising. It comes from the books. It comes from the culture. You know, and if you're not doing that, you're not living up to it. It's, it's just another form of oppression. Interestingly, there's one part of the book where you, where um, this nameless woman is reflecting on how even in the 21st century, there are still stories that mothers in Ireland cannot publicly tell that they dislike one of their children, that they are bored with their nice husband, that one day while the nice husband is out walking the dog, they check the search history on his laptop and find that he has been keeping company with legal teens, that they are sometimes scared of their son, that their daughters blackmail them emotionally, that occasionally they think about killing themselves. No one wants to hear these stories, not her sister or her best friend, and certainly not the other women at the school gate. If a mother wants to tell one of these stories, she will have to pay someone to listen." I found that quite chilling. And again, one of those like, oh, my God, truth. (laughs) It's pretty chilling. It wasn't always easy to write this narrator. But I when I started out, I knew that if I was going to do this kind of voice from this woman, well, there wasn't much point in putting a filter on it, that she's she is in her own head. And in that head, there's no censorship. So she I had to go too far to find her. Yeah, too far. I love it. <laughs> yeah, well, I'm glad you did because it's amazing. Your daughter, who you had when you were 18, is also a writer. That's right. Which I find amazing. <laughs> I mean, not really. I suppose it's not off the ground she licked it or it's just in the in the ether or whatever it is. But you're actually the person who submitted her first story. That's right. I think it's because I because of this like uh, obsession with reading from, from, you know, from, from a very, very early age. Like some of my most intense childhood memories are just books. And I do see books as friends and uh, past writers as like, you know, uh, as if they're like my people. (laughs) (laughs) And I never get over some things that are very obvious to other people. I can get up every day and think about the same thing. (laughs) Like how come we can talk to these people all down through space and time? And they have the same concerns, laugh at the same jokes, et cetera, as us. How is that possible? That's amazing. And also, like, you know, questions like, what is a short story? Like, I can ask it every day. So I think it was just the way I did it. I communicate a lot with people by saying, oh, you should read this. So obviously, there was a huge amount of reading as parenting, and maybe reading as love. And... And obviously the child, like in a family where they play sports, they're going to, you know, run around with the hurley stick, whatever. You're passing on a message that this is a great thing. And uh, all three of my children picked that up. I suppose they had to. <laughs> but uh, and as a teacher, you know, anyone I've ever taught will will always know that I never said, said anything except read, read, read. And let's go to the library. So. Yes, I think Lucy went on then to study English. And um, when she started writing and showing me her work, I just could see, oh, my God, she's just like amazing raw talent. And uh, did you worry that that was just your mother? That, that The fact that it was your daughter. She was so amazing. You know, did you worry about that or were you able to be objective about it? I was able to be objective about it because I, <laughs> no, I she think, is brilliant. I've read her stuff. Yeah, um, <laughs> like energy either comes from a page or it doesn't. Like they can be other things, but. Like Lucy had just like, it, you know, like this is high voltage. And um, so it seemed very natural. Like neither of us were published. At, at, you know, she, she wasn't brought up by somebody who was writing. 
she was brought up by somebody who's a teacher. So it was a, you know, it was an odd kind of situation, but um, it's it's wonderful. We we still have that relationship where it's about books. You know, if, if you read something great, all I can think of is, oh, Lucy, read it, read it, read it, so we can talk about it. So it's still books. And you, funnily enough, you both ended up on a, a shortlist for the same prize at one point. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> what was that like? We didn't really notice it because... Uh, <laughs> These things are less noticeable than you imagine. <laughs> yeah, fair enough. Um, going back to to the nameless woman, um, you mentioned earlier on that you didn't want to make her likable. And I really enjoyed that about the book because she does some things that you just go, what the hell is she doing? Why is she doing that? There's a lot of weird sex. I should say, I shouldn't say weird because maybe all sex is weird, but just there's some interesting sexual encounters where you're thinking, what is she at? And But again, that's all part of the unravelling of what's happening with her. Do you mind perhaps that some people might wish she was more likable or that they might have more sympathy for her? Like, I don't need to have sympathy for this person. I just want to feel what she's feeling and see what she's going through. And you've done that and that's good enough for me. But there is a sort of, a oh, I'd like her to be a bit more maybe likeable. Are you? Does that bother you? Mm, well, it's not my business to be bothered by that because that's the beauty, again, of this wondrous exchange. What people read is, is their experience. It's, I have no say in that at all. So no, but it, it was important to me because I I, I heard too, I've heard too many conversations and it's, it's, it's not about people not being nice. Of course, I believe in civilization and politeness very much. And I, I love civilized exchange. But somebody had said about Yvonne Boland, you know, oh, well, I heard that she wasn't very nice. And I, it just, I'm just tired of it. Um, so really, really tired of it. I think it's quite reductive. And it's not about what women are like. It's about their work, surely. Please <laughs> let it be about the work. And so therefore, that was something that brooded me for a, for a long time. You know, yeah. I just want her to do things that you're not meant to do. <laughs> like stuff all the clothes in the bin and, you know, just ridiculous things. And or just be snarky and rude, have a foul mouth, you know, have sex when you shouldn't you know just just be just go off grid just go rogue yeah and uh that seemed important to me I I also felt that for reckonings to be real there has to be some level of you know an awful lot at stake and there is because she's walking away from a husband she's walking away from two sort of nearly grown up children. And it's so funny because they're still texting her like, uh, can you give me a lift? Is this like hours after she's she's gone away? It's kind of amazing how it filters through and eventually they realise she's not coming back and, and all that kind of thing. I'm thinking about, I mentioned earlier, you know, I do believe some women reading this book, if they, if they get to read it, it might kind of touch deep parts of them that they haven't been acknowledging, right? You know, parts of them, their lives that maybe they're not happy with. But I suppose there are lots of women maybe living these lives that this nameless woman is living that are OK with what they're doing, right? That they're OK with getting up the, the island in the middle of the kitchen and the husband coming and looking for cheese and going through this ritual of life and are satisfied with that. I mean, that is a it's an OK way to live as well, isn't it? Uh, I think, Roisin, this is extremely important. Like one, that the book is not a polemic. It's just one woman. But secondly, the sections in the book 
where her husband comes to visit her and her imaginings that she's seen him or the phone call she has with him. For me, I felt very much that this narrator could very, uh, just as easily not have left. And that was extremely important to me. Like uh, ultimately our, our lives are very much going to be within the story we want to tell ourselves. And that's fine. We, every, we, we, all, we, all, we all have to do that. It was just about really like pointing to one woman whose story had become so narrow uh, that, that she began to choke in it. Like she, it became claustrophobic. But there are points along the way that the life she ends up having in Wales and the life that she had sitting at that island in the kitchen are both possible for this woman. Yeah. There isn't, um, like, this is not a, you know, it is. it was not a polemic. It was, I wanted to open out a story and maybe deconstruct it, take it apart. And I did know that, I, you know, I couldn't mm. not go too far mm. because otherwise and, there'd be no story. And one very powerful part of the story as well, and you mentioned to Martin Doyle, our books editor recently, about I think one of the most important political things that's happened in your lifetime is repeal the eighth. And she, this woman in the book uh, at 19, has an abortion and travels to England again on a ferry because she's back taking a ferry later yeah. on going over to Wales. That was important to write about for you? Or to put that sort of story uh, in? I think it, it was important. It's such, for this woman's age and time, it's such an ordinary story. And also a lot of what this character, I, I wanted to situate her within these subtle kind of chimings at the back of consciousness that did propel her. Because, you know, I, I had to ask myself over and over again, writing her like, really? Like, really? You know, surely she's going to go home now. Who doesn't want to go home, have a bath and a glass of wine? I mean, there's nothing wrong. Her children are like, you know, pretty darn successful or, you know, her husband's fine. There's no screaming problems here. But it actually circles back to what you said about me returning to the school. Coincidentally, there are circling around her consciousness, the unprocessed grief about her relationship with her mother and perhaps the unforeseen effect that the abortion had had on her, which was now I will be normal. I will do things right. And that she'd, that it had almost, um, it had, it had affected her in a way that she wasn't very conscious of in that it had made her seek security perhaps, or respectability or any of these things that are cloaks, money against against unprocessed feelings of isolation, sadness. Mm, yeah. Uh, you now live in the countryside, right? Is that right? Well, I'm. <laughs> nobody knows where I live because I keep moving. <laughs> Sorry. Just, um, I have moved a lot um, and I've just moved again in the late October. I am now living in Wexford Town currently. Okay. So, and, yeah. and you, you like Wexford, do you? I seem to like Wexford a lot. I was here for 18 months living in a really small village during the uh, pandemic, right by the sea. And I was kind of in love with that. And then I was in Cork for two years because I was uh, lucky enough to work in the university as the writer in residence. And I'm back in Wexford town now, uh, sort of a little bit happenstance, but um, sorry, I'm glancing over because I'm a very visual person. I'm like, there's Wexford town out my window. And uh, I am just feeling very snug here. You know, I, okay. I don't really know 
I don't judge things by, I don't know how I'm going to feel. I could go somewhere gorgeous and I could want to just like run. But um, I'm really liking it. There's the most extraordinarily beautiful light in this part of the country. It's very yellowy and um, it's very soft. And yeah, right now I'm like, this is great. I also can get on the train and, you know, meet a friend in Dublin or whatever. So yeah, right now I'm here, but I'm pretty ready. I, I can move very quickly. I'm very light. And do you live with any of your children now? Are they all grown up and gone away? They are in Spain, Italy and Lucy's in Belfast. Okay. Yeah. How's Lucy finding the the literary scene in Belfast? It seems to be quite vibrant at the moment. I'm loving so many young um, women, particularly from Northern Ireland, writing at the moment. Yeah, I think she's feeling really good there. And also she's done a great thing in that she's a member of the Linen Hall and she goes there to write. And I, I went in and I looked around and I was like, Oh, that's fabulous. So I think she's she's not there. She's not there terribly long, about six months. So she's still finding her feet. But, you know, it's going really well. Yeah. Brilliant. Listen, tell me what you're working on now. I heard something about uh, a period in Oscar Wilde's life, which sounds like a million miles away from this nameless woman in breakdown. I don't think, Roisin, that I'd have any interest in. Like I have absolutely consumed every ounce of it material <laughs> Uh, in terms of contemporary society, etc., in writing breakdown. And I have no interest in writing anything unless I feel that it's slightly impossible and then I get excited. So, yes, I think uh, writers are who know more than me say that you're not actually meant to talk about what you're writing next. But I didn't know that. So I am writing about this very small period in Oscar Wilde's life that has fascinated me for a very long time. I first started writing about it in 2014 and it was after he came out of jail within months of writing Finishing Day Profundus when he set up home with Lord Alfred Douglas in Naples, hmm. in a villa. And it is something that's deep inside me, this, um, I think as Michael Hoffman called it, the the Kafka, Kafka time, when everything's already too late and you know it, but you do it anyway. I just find there's great grace in that and I don't know why. So I'm writing it. I'm still in the magical place of playing with it, but uh, it's entirely different in material, scope, style, everything to break down. Yeah. And and that is important to you, like you said, because you we should say as well that breakdown the title, we haven't mentioned it yet. It's not just about this woman's breakdown. It's about the breakdown that we're experiencing all around us, whether it's climate change or you mentioned advertising, the commercial the sort of capitalist lifestyle that we live. That's a really important thread running through the book. Thank you. Well, I'm glad that, that like that was really important to me. Uh, very important to me that it's 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 you know this this one pebble in all these concentric circles around that are all breaking down in some way and the the woman's the woman's journey out of us I think a kind of a bit of narcissistic obsession out into seeing people and life around her and being pulled out of herself and I I I didn't want that breakdown to be a dystopia because I don't think it is. I mean, the world's always been breaking down. Yeah. So I think there's um, a kind of philo- philosophy of acceptance for her that she can look at something that uh, perhaps has flaws or is damaged, and the love is introduced or the beauty. But that's important. I also had you know a little bit of the R.D. Lang at the back of my head, like 
is it is it insane to be in you know to to be sane in an insane world kind of stuff so you know that's it's it's breakdown whatever way people want want to read it um mm. but yeah i think you do require me i do maybe some other writers are different a vast vast amount of energy at the beginning of a project where you feel a compulsion because i don't find it particularly easy when I get to like project tip <laughs> to keep to keep going at first it's great but it's hard to push the novel over the line and keeping it as true to the original vision so you, I, I need a huge amount of energy and that energy for me comes from a sort of like a belief that I don't think I can do it ah so it needs to be like you said a little bit impossible yeah, feeling yeah and that I just stay in doubt Okay. Well, from that doubt has come an extraordinary first novel, and I, I wonder how you're feeling with this time because it's about to be released, or it's it's is it in the shops now? Or? I think it's in the shops now. Yeah. Um, I feel. Does fine. it feel strange? What does that feel like? I mean, are you excited or? I was nervous? excited. I w- w- walked down to uh, Wexford Town and into the lovely bookshop and uh, bought a copy, and. <laughs> <laughs> And repressed the uh, the strange urge that was coming to say to the person at the checkout, I wrote this book. <laughs> um, so I celebrate things in my own way. I am living in a place where I don't actually know anybody, and uh, but I'm really happy. So it's fine, but it's all happening out there, not not in here. <laughs> Yeah. So it's fine. Well, I, I mean, I know you said it's not a polemic and I really appreciated that you said this, that thing of, of this woman could have gone back to her life and continue to live. At the same time, is there a part of you uh, curious or wondering about whether it does touch people to that extent where it makes people question perhaps maybe the things that they've been accepting that aren't as as good as what they should be having in their lives or as, as real or as authentic? I don't have any particular set ambition at all, except I am delighted if anybody like reads the book and gets something out of it. And as I often say to myself, and also, you know, I'm teaching at the moment uh, a short story course in the Irish Writer Centre and um, resistance is a fantastic source of energy. Some of the things that I've disliked most in my life have been something that have stayed with me the longest. So... It's not my business what somebody takes from this book. And I I never thought to myself, oh, you're writing a book that people really like. Um, whenever voices come into my head, I just went on the, the Margaret Atwood advice. No one's ever going to read it. You're never going to read it yourself. You know, so I hold that line, Roisin. I hold that line because if you if you start going into that Venn diagram of what people might think, well, I, 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 I would, it would actually dilute the energy for me. All right. I understand. and But I do think people are going to have a lot of feelings, a lot of thoughts, and it'll be, I'm Great. sure it'll be interesting and fascinating again for you to sort of look at that and see what, what impact it's made. But it's it's really wonderful and it's been brilliant talking to you. So interesting. And I really look forward to your next one, even though it sounds completely different. I think I'll be just as intrigued and entranced. Uh, your style is wonderful. And it's been a real pleasure talking to you, Kathy. Uh, Roisin, it's been a real pleasure talking to you. Thank, and I really appreciate it. Thank you so much. You're very welcome. 
That was the fantastic Kathy Sweeney there. The book is called Breakdown. And as I said, I would highly recommend you pick it up in the next few days. It's perfect for book clubs too. And I think it will provoke some brilliant conversations. If you enjoyed this episode and the podcast, please leave us a review or subscribe. It really makes a difference to us. Email us on thewomenspodcast at irishtimes.com or get in touch with us on social at IT Women's Podcast. The podcast is produced by Suzanne Brennan and by me, Roisin Ingle, with JJ Vernon on sound. That's it for me. Mind yourselves and I will talk to you next time. Hi, I'm Dori Shafrier. And I'm Kate Spencer. And we are the hosts of Forever 35. And today... We're talking about Club Med, the best all-inclusive getaway for families. Today, Club Med has nearly 70 resorts worldwide, from beachside resorts in the Caribbean and Mexico, to magical locations in the Maldives and Morocco, to ski resorts in the mountains from Canada to the Alps. Between their all-inclusive family programming, wellness offerings, land and water sports, and their French heritage-inspired food and drink offerings, Club Med is the best way to elevate your family getaway, no matter which location you're at. To learn more, visit clubmed.us.